happened sometime in Australia's history. Now, that's not because he's stupid or silly. That's just the power of stories to grab the imagination. Uh, and we, we might laugh a little bit at you know, a, a kid believing that this was real. And yet there is some reality to this. Of course, not in jets flying overhead and foreign powers invading us, but we are at war. I wonder if you know that, that we currently are at war. And I don't mean with overseas countries or even wars happening overseas. I mean right here, right now, we are at war. Open up with me to Ephesians chapter 6. In fact, even better if you've heard the Bible, read, then keep it open because this is what we're looking at. Ephesians chapter 6, it's on page 979 of your Bibles. And the passage begins in uh, verse 10 with a call to action. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, if someone comes along to you and puts their hands on your shoulders and says, be strong, (laughs) stand firm, what goes through your mind? What's, What's happening? There's something happening. Now, what's happening? Here's what's happening. We are locked in a spiritual war. This is reality. Verse 11, the devil himself comes against us with his schemes. And so, verse 12, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, against people, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places or or in the unseen spiritual places. This is not a war we can see with our own eyes, but it is raging around us. See, the biggest war happening right now in the world is not happening in the Middle East or in Ukraine, as important and as devastating and as significant as those wars are. And the biggest war happening right now is not a culture war, of liberal versus conservative ideologies, as passionate as some people may be about that. And the biggest war happening right now is not with the people in your life that are giving you a hard time or are pushing you down or oppressing you or making life difficult. The biggest war right now is not with people. It is not with flesh and blood. We're at war with something much more powerful. It is a battle of cosmic proportions, a spiritual war against the devil himself and he will use every means in his arsenal to try to destroy you. Friends, Satan marches against us, against you. He will destroy by lies, by doubt, by fear, by pride, by temptation to sin, any possible means of derailing you from trusting in Jesus Christ following Jesus Christ, repenting of sin and doing the will of Jesus Christ, finding joy in Jesus Christ and remaining in Jesus Christ to your dying day. He means to destroy you and he has succeeded many times before with many people before. And so praise God that Jesus has already guaranteed the victory. Right? Yeah. Colossians 2 verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Open shame because it happened publicly at the cross. This is what Jesus did at the cross. It was for your forgiveness 
for you to be individually made right with God. But there's also something bigger happening at the cross too, where Jesus is dealing with the enemy. He turns the the weapons of Satan back on himself. You thought about this? That, that Satan meant to destroy the Son of God at the cross, but in so doing, actually, the Son of God destroyed him. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. Because in Jesus, in his death, he frees us from the accusation of Satan. That is one of the things that he holds against us. You are a sinner. But Jesus dealt with the penalty of our sin at the cross. He also deals not only with the penalty, but with the power of sin. That is another thing that Satan holds over us. He says, I will try and tempt you to follow something other than Jesus, to be confused of the world and to go back to the old life in the flesh. But Jesus, by his work at the cross, frees us from the power of sin so that we might walk in righteousness. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, deals with the penalty and power of Satan. And we can appropriate that in our lives as long as we stand firm in the way that God provides. That's why we're told in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Friends, how do we stand firm in the victory that Jesus has won? A spiritual battle calls for spiritual resources. It calls for something from God. And here, God promises to clothe us in armour that helps us stand firm. It's the armour of God or the armour from God. We don't need to do things like fight territorial spirits or burn Harry Potter books. It's, it's to do with what we wear. And you might remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been talking about the ordinary means of grace. These are, are habits. Uh, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind keeping the PowerPoint window there so I can click through. There we go. One, two, there we go. Yeah, we've been talking about the ordinary means of grace, like these gifts that God gives us, they're gifts of grace, but they're ordinary things that we do in God's grace that bring growth, right? These are are habits. They're like the clothing that we wear. They're they're the things that are part of us that are just part of life because we put them on, right? And so last week, of course, we looked at being immersed in Scripture, and that is something that we do over and over again. We encounter God through His Word. We're engaged with the Word day by day, putting bricks on the wall, but it all adds up to something. It adds up to a habit that forms who we are. And the armor of God very much reflects that idea. That's why you get these commands in here uh, to put on or take up the armor. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God. Or verse 14, stand firm since you have fastened on the belt of truth. Verse 16, take up the shield of faith. These are things that we do. And the picture is that once we put the armour on, we keep wearing it. Not that every morning you need to imagine this ritual of, you know, literally putting a helmet on your head and putting on a breastplate and fastening on a belt as if if you don't have the belt of truth on, you'll believe every lie that you hear. It doesn't work that way. It's not ritualistic. Rather, it's picturing a spiritual reality. And it's this kind of spiritual reality you can see here on the screen. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago in Colossians chapter 3, that I used to wear the clothes of the old life, the clothes of doing what the flesh wants me to do, 
living against God and his will. Power of Satan who means to destroy me. But through faith in Jesus, I am now clothed with God's righteousness. The penalty of sin is gone. I'm wearing new clothing. And so I'm going to go on wearing the clothes that now fit my new life. Right? I mean, intentionally putting them on, so to speak, and then I'm going to go on wearing them. I'm making choices that align with the will of God in my new life, that align with my new identity as a righteous, innocent person of God, and, and I, I make that, those intentional choices, and then it becomes the clothes that I wear. It becomes the habits in my life that form who I am. And that's the picture here of the armour of God. I'm becoming a person who has been saved and brought out of the old life and now is being defined by truth and righteousness and gospel-wrought peace. You with me? This is just another way of saying the armour of God. This is what enables me to stand against the enemy. But here's the very interesting bit, friends. Right at the end of this passage, there is only one thing that the armoured up person is sort of commanded to do. Here they are with the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, they've got the shield of faith, they've got the sword in their hand, and we might think, charge and fight! <laughs> right, but actually, verse 18, the thing that the armoured up person is called to do is to pray. Pray. And this is the second habit of the ordinary means of grace. Last week, immersed in scripture. This week, steadfast in prayer. It's an extension of who we are, how we've been clothed, what we choose to do, the habits we choose to form. In amongst all that, prayer is sort of one of these things that, that binds the whole armour together. It's not part of the armour, but it's the thing that the person wearing the armour does. It's how they stand firm in the battle. It's a choice, it's an action, and it becomes a habit that enables us to resist the enemy. And not only resist, but actually grow to be someone who stands firm on the battlefield and is useful in this spiritual war, who is courageous in this spiritual war, who appropriates the victory of Jesus in this spiritual war and sees fruitfulness in this spiritual war, steadfast in prayer. How do I cultivate that habit? What do I need to do in order to make this a reality in my life? And this is so important because of the nature of the battle that we're in, friends. How do I cultivate a life of steadfast prayer? Well, God has given us in the word of life exactly what we need. He doesn't leave us to make it up on our own. Verse 18, he gives us five things that mark a life of steadfast prayer. We're going to reflect on these five phrases together. Steadfast prayer is alongside the word, at all times, in the spirit, through hardship, and for the gospel. Here's the picture, right? Picture someone standing firm on a battlefield, okay? What do they look like? Well, in the one hand, they've got the sword of the Spirit, and in the other, they're offering up prayers to God, right? There's the person who is praying alongside the Word. Secondly, they're not letting down their guard, but they are praying at all times. Thirdly, they're equipped and they're submitted to their commanding officer. They are praying in the Spirit. Fourthly, they're not leaving the front line, no matter how difficult it is. They're not turning tail and running away. They are praying even through hardship. 
And then fifthly, they're standing together with other soldiers, seeing that the battle is much bigger than themselves. There is this whole thing happening, and so they are praying for the gospel. This is the kind of habit that God uses to keep you in the fight, to experience more of Jesus' victory, and to do incredible things in the world that desperately needs the gospel. So let's work through these five things. Number one, steadfast prayer happens alongside the word. Now, verse 17, in the one hand, we hold the sword of the spirit, which is what? What's it say? What is it? The word of God. That's right. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And in the other hand, we've got this in the one hand, the other, we're offering up requests to God and we're praising God and we're confessing our sin to God. That it's sort of this two-handed thing. Now, can you imagine someone who's holding one of those in one hand, but then not holding the thing in the other hand, right? Like imagine someone who is, is Bible open in one hand and they're immersed in Scripture and they never pray. It's unthinkable, isn't it? Scripture commands us to pray. That in itself is enough reason to pray. But then also imagine someone who is praying, but is never actually touched by the truth of Scripture. They're just praying for whatever they think is, is going to be good to pray for in whatever way they think God will accept. Well, no, actually, the Word tells us what to pray for and it tells us how to pray. This is a, a two-handed approach. Having only one of these or praying without the Word or being alongside the Word, is like, it's like standing on one leg while someone is trying to push you over, right? It, you're going to fall over. It's not going to work. Now, have you heard of the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism before? Very catchy title, Westminster Shorter Catechism. What it is, is a, a series of statements. You grab your phone, Google it if you want. Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's just a series of questions and answers. It was written so that um, both adults and kids could understand some really basic theological things. What are the things we really need to know to keep going forward as Christians? And it'll just give a question, and then it'll give a simple answer that even a kid can memorise. So here's one of them. What is prayer? The first part of the answer is, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. Not just things that we think God should be interested in, or that we think God should answer, but things that His Word says are His will, right? Not just the things we think are good, but the things He says are good to pray for. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can only know his will through his word. You with me? So a habit of steadfast prayer happens, prayer in one hand, but the word of God, the sword of the spirit in the other. We need both. Now, the question is, how are you going with that at the moment? Last week, we talked about being immersed in Scripture, right? I left you with a bunch of questions, questions like this. Take a moment and reflect. Are these things that you've thought about since last Sunday? I mean, I hope so. I believe so. That's why we're here. That's why we keep coming back. We want Jesus to form us, don't we? We want him to form us as people who are immersed in the Scripture, not just reading it, not leaving it on the shelf, but but being soaked in it, hearing from God constantly. How are you going with these things? If these are not things you're engaging with, 
the Bible's staying shut or it's being read at just a very superficial level, you will end up malnourished and stunted in your prayer life. Your prayers will be ineffective. However, if you are growing and engaging in these things and being immersed in Scripture, then the stage is set for you to grow in prayer as well. It's sort of like the kind of plants in a garden that, that grow up together, right? Uh, it's sort of this symbiotic relationship between the Word and prayer. Read the Word and you'll pray. Pray and you'll read the Word. That's how it works. Continue growing in these things, friends. That's the first thing. We pray alongside the Word. Which brings us to phrase number two. A habit of steadfast prayer means that we pray at all times. And we see that at the start of verse 18. We're praying at all times. And here's a stat for you. Uh, you might have heard of the National Church Life Survey. It happens every few years. They, they sort of put a, a call out to churches, but also to average Aussies. Um, let's ask you a whole lot of questions about religion, basically. Apparently, about 17% of Aussies pray or meditate every single day. That's a lot higher than I thought, actually. Uh, and maybe the meditate part of that question is, like, I know that's popular now, uh, even among psychological sort of circles, uh, to meditate uh, as a way of, of reducing your anxiety. So maybe that's pushing the stat up a bit. Uh, but 17%. I think something else that's throwing that statistic up higher than it should be is that a lot of daily prayer looks like this for people. It's like, dear Lord, thank you for this meal that we're about to receive. Amen. Something like that. My parents who aren't Christian, they'll even put up with a prayer like that when we pray over our dinner table, right? Now, not saying that's bad. That's good. That's good. Thank God for the food that you receive. That is a wonderful thing to do. But steadfast prayer is much, 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 much bigger than that. Um, here's the picture, right? It's, it's not just something I do before eating. It is like my living and breathing. That's what prayer is. It is my mode of existence. It's just kind of part of the clothes that I'm wearing. Now, an uh, interesting book that I read uh, a few years ago, it's called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, this is written by uh, Tish somebody Warren. Uh, she, she's not from the kind of theological circle that our church tends to be from, but I found it quite a helpful book. There's plenty of helpful stuff in here. And what she talks about really is taking the everyday moments of your day. In fact, what she does is she starts from the moment of waking up and just traces through the ordinary moments of the day until the moment that you go to sleep. Uh, and, and she talks about how do you be immersed in the Word and steadfast in prayer and present with God in all of those different moments of the day. It's really quite a clever little book. And so something like, for example, I talk to God. I'm always in conversation with Him, right? So I talk to God when I wake up. In fact, when I wake up, it reminds me that I'm completely dependent on God because I've just been eyes shut, can't see a thing, can't defend myself for a good eight hours or so, right? I have depended on God to sustain me for that period of time. So I wake up as a dependent creature and I, I thank him for that. And I also plead for his mercy today that he would continue to sustain me. She also pictures something like when I get in the shower. I did this this morning. Uh, you get in the shower and, and the water hitting your skin reminds you that you have been cleansed from your sin by the work of Jesus. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so as the water hits your skin, you pour out a prayer of thankfulness to him and also a prayer of confession to him. He knows all of your sin and yet he forgives it. She just goes through, she does all these little moments. When I brush my teeth, 
when I make brekkie, when I'm chopping the carrots, when I'm in the car taking the kids to daycare, there are all these little moments that we can in fact redeem and experience a moment of conversation with God. You get the idea with this. And there, there are so many moments that we can do this with. And the more that we do this, the more second nature that it becomes. That is the nature of habits. It becomes like breathing. I turned up this quote from a theologian named Karl Barth this week. He says that it's not possible for us to say, I will pray or I will not pray, as if it were a question of pleasing ourselves. To be a Christian and to pray mean the same thing. Not a thing which I can be left to my own wayward impulses. It is rather a necessity as breathing is necessary to life. Hence, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're called to pray without ceasing. It is something I'm just, I'm always in conversation with God. And yes, certainly, I, I hope that for you, like with me, there are moments where you do sit and there is an intentional time of prayer, particularly for the church and for the world. But there are also, it's just this ongoing conversation with God throughout the day. And here's the point that I cut from my sermon, but I've got to say it. <laughs> uh, th there is this conversation always going on, in case you're not aware. Right? Just like there is a spiritual battle always going on. There is a conversation always going on as the Father and the Son and the Spirit constantly pour out love to one another. Have you thought about this before? The, our God is triune. The Father, the Son and the Spirit are constantly pouring out love in the context of fellowship with one another. So when we pray, it is not so much that, that God is, is silent and now my voice is filling the gap. It's not just that I'm starting to pray I'm actually joining in. I'm joining in this triune conversation that's always happening. How incredible is that? That's not just a nerdy theological point. That's, that's amazing. So we pray at all times. We're in this constant conversation with God. That is part of steadfast prayer. Point three. Steadfast prayer is in the spirit. It is in the spirit. Now, imagine if you're coming home from Sydney one day, maybe you're a commuter or you've been out to the theatre or something like that, and you see someone that's a few seats ahead of you and they're just like eyes closed talking to themselves. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I probably should get off this carriage and get into a new one, right? This is making me a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, the, the, to the casual observer, that's what prayer looks like, right? Like, here's just someone talking to themselves or maybe to no one at all. I don't know which one is worse. And yet, we, of course, understand as Christians that there is something much more going on there. As someone is, is mouthing a prayer, whether they're audible or not, or even whether their lips are moving or not, they are speaking to the very real God. God is very real. And prayer is speaking to Him. And this very real God has a very real will. He is not like the force in Star Wars where you, it's just this power that you channel and, and wield as you want. No, no, no. This is the very real God with very real desires and a very real will. And so when I pray, I am seeking to pray in line with His will, in line with the will of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. That is what it means to pray in the Spirit. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, praying in the Spirit is prayer that conforms to the will and purpose of the Spirit. This is the Spirit who has co-authored the Word of God. He's made God's will known to us by inspiring these words. And so when I pray in the Spirit, 
I am seeking to pray according to the will of God. It sounds like your will be done. Again, that's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? In Matthew chapter 6. It's how Jesus himself prayed when he was in the garden. Your will be done, Lord. That's praying in the Spirit. Now, uh, some people, of course, think that this means something different. They have a, a different picture of what praying in the Spirit means. And it's worth clearing this up for a moment. Uh, some think that, that it's a certain kind of prayer, right? Like a, like a language that we use when we pray. And often, it's, 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 what's in picture here is a special sort of communication with God that, that often sounds like what we might call speaking in tongues. And so they hear pray in the Spirit and they go, oh, that, that's what this is talking about. Uh, and, and often they'll refer back to Romans chapter 8. Come there with me. It's worth having a look at this. So flip forward in your Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Wait, it is back actually, sorry. Romans 8. I was going back and then I went, no, that's not right. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. Well, I'll look at, at verse 26 to 27. Now, I want you just to, to see how this sits with you on first reading, okay? Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit, so there's the Spirit again, we're talking about what the Spirit does. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. So we're talking about Spirit and prayer here, right? Similar to Ephesians. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Big phrase at the end there groanings too deep for words. I mean, that, that sounds something like speaking in tongues, doesn't it? Like, like these, these groans that, that aren't words, that are something else. It's, it's deeper. Uh, it's coming from the depths. It's like praying in a language we don't understand. It, it does sound like that. But the thing is, I don't think that's actually the best way to understand that phrase. I, I don't think it's talking about a special language. It's talking about a special need that Christians have. Now, if you look back at the start of verse 26, it supplies us with the context. The Spirit helps us in what? Our weaknesses. That's the context of this. Not a special language, but a special need. Not a kind of prayer, but, but something God does for us. He helps us when we groan. And after all, it is us groaning. Look back at verse 23. The creation, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, life is hard, friends. We know this, don't we? Life is hard. We're waiting for Jesus to return and bring an end to the hardship. And at times, there is groaning in us that is too deep for words. Your brain is just mush from exhaustion, right? You're carrying this grief that has, has almost just sent you to bed in the dark. You've almost lost hope. You're sick of paying the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. These times come for us all. You're at the end of your tether. And sometimes in those moments, I don't know if you've experienced this, I have, the words just won't come out. Do you know what that's like? Like You, you know that you should pray. And, and you, you, you know what God's will is sometimes. You know what to pray. It's just... It won't come out. Groaning's too deep for words. And in those times, friends, the promise here is that the Spirit will intercede for you. 
he will intercede for you. He knows exactly what to do with our half-baked, stumbling, sometimes even wordless prayers. Filled with pain, filled with confusion, filled with doubt. He knows how to take those prayers and, and like a book editor, right? Or, or like if you're a uni student, Grammarly, right? The, the thing that, that helps you edit your, your essays into something that's worthwhile to submit, right? This is what the Spirit does. He, he takes these prayers and he, he edits them into something that honors God's will and that glorifies God and accomplishes exactly what we need for us and exactly what will most glorify God. That is what the Spirit promises to do, to take our prayers and align them with God's will in those moments when they are almost wordless. That's why we get in verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right, there's the point. Praying in the Spirit isn't about praying in tongues. First, it's about praying according to God's will. That's what we saw before. But then even when we find it so hard to pray according to God's will, it's about trusting that the Spirit intercedes for us. He intercedes for us in our weaknesses. When either we, we don't know God's will and we just have to say, Lord, your will be done. Or we do know God's will, but but it's too hard to pray it or we know God's will and we have been praying it for months and for years and we're at the end of our tether. The Spirit intercedes for us. Now, don't you find that encouraging? That is so encouraging. Does that give you courage to keep praying even when it feels impossible? That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to make you steadfast in prayer, to, to sit and to trust in the Spirit's work even when all you can muster is a groan. That's point three. Praying in the Spirit is steadfast prayer. Point four. It really kind of leads to this. Steadfast prayer happens even through hardship. This is kind of where all our previous points have brought us, right? <laughs> when we engage in the spiritual battle, standing firm in Christ, things are going to be hard, are they not? We are in a battle. But God means for us to keep praying. As Ephesians 6.18 puts it, we keep alert with all perseverance. That word, keep alert, there. Uh, think about Jesus speaking to his disciples in the garden. Stay awake. Keep alert. Keep watchful. And do so with all perseverance. That is, don't run away, but dig in. Not because it's easy, but because it's difficult. Keep standing your ground, whatever you might face. Now, at one point, Jesus tells a parable that illustrates this concept. It's in Luke chapter 18. Uh, it's about a, a woman, a widow, uh, who comes before an unjust judge. Uh, in Luke chapter 18, uh, we hear about this. There's this judge who didn't care about God, right? And didn't care about people. The perfect person to hire as a judge. How did he get that job? I don't know. And yet, there he is. And this widow, this, this woman who's been hard done by, we hear, she's been... Uh, in some way disadvantaged or abused by someone, she comes up to this judge and pleads for justice. As you can imagine, this judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people and doesn't really care about justice, just fobs her off. So she keeps coming. Day after day after day. It probably looks a little bit like this, right? Over and over and over, bowing before this judge, seeking for his, to, to him to make some sort of judgment that will finally result in her protection 
and justice for her. And eventually, the judge cracks. Verse 4, he says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by continually coming to me. Now, the judge listened not because of who he was, but because of her perseverance. And Jesus tells us the point of the parable straight away in verse 1 when he says that he told them this parable to the effect that they might always pray and not lose heart. That's the point. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that parable and found it confusing. Because is this saying that that God is like that guy? (laughs) No, that's not the point of the parable. Uh, In the ancient world, sometimes there are stories that illustrate a point by pointing from a, a reality that's, that's kind of somewhat true but not, tr- not quite true to point to a, a much truer reality. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. So if even this unjust judge who doesn't care a bit for people or for God, that, that's more interested in lining his own pockets than he is dispensing, judge it, uh, uh, dispensing justice, if even he will listen to this poor, destitute widow when she keeps coming... How much more will God listen who very much cares for his people, who loves his people, who always does what is good and wise for his people, who has the power to back it up? That's the point. Not that God is like this guy, it's actually that he is unlike this guy. He is so much more generous than the unjust judge. And I think that sometimes we just really need that reminder, don't we? Remember, Paul prayed for the Lord to take away the thorn in his flesh. We don't know what the thorn is, just that he prayed that the Lord would take it away. He prayed how many times, you remember? Three times. He kept praying. Jesus, when he was in the garden, prayed three times that the Lord would send some other way to save people, some other way than the cross. Except, Lord, your will be done. He was praying in the Spirit. We need to persevere in prayer and we need to be reminded that God is good, that he loves to hear our prayers and that he answers with what is exactly for our best and most for his glory. And and when we do persevere, something happens. Something happens in us. It's not just something happens to God. He's unchangeable. Something happens in us so that God forms us through this kind of prayer. Paul prayed for the thorn to be taken away three times, and in persevering, he learned, actually, I need to be content with God's will. Even this thing that is not going to be taken away, I will be content. Jesus prayed three times, but, Lord, your will be done, uh, that, that he would avoid the cross. And in the end, it galvanized him to do the will of God, to do the very hard thing, the greatest cost in all humanity, because he prayed, because he persevered in prayer and knew, okay, this really is the, the will of God. And I think that when we're in those times of great hardship, we need to persevere in prayer, whether the answer will be yes or no or not yet. We persevere in prayer. And in so doing, we become people who learn contentment and trust and submission and dependence, all the things that enable us to stand with our Saviour in the battle. Yes? Last point. Steadfast prayer is for the gospel. It is for the gospel. Now, uh, in, here in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, if you haven't 
if you're like me and haven't gone back there, then, then go back. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, uh, all, the, all the uses of the word you here are actually plural. They're, they're not singular. Okay? So in English, we might say use, right? Uh, it's not just you individually, but it's yous need to take up the armor of God. Yous need to pray all time in the Spirit, which, you know, you see why they didn't translate it that way. It sounds horrible. It's like bogan standard English version or something. But, but that's, that's what it actually means. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, he didn't teach them the Lord's Prayer as, give me today my daily bread. It was give who? Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts uh, steadfast prayer actually lifts us up beyond ourselves to see this battle that is happening and I've got brothers and sisters in the fight with me and there is a world that desperately needs the gospel of Jesus. Right? I, I am not just alone and, and protecting myself, I am standing firm also for the sake of others. That's what steadfast prayer does. And verse 18, therefore, calls us to pray, making supplication, that is, that is prayers of request, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, says Paul, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And there's a helpful image that once a, uh, a fellow pastor gave to me. I'll show you this on the screen. It's very self-explanatory. It's just this idea of praying in concentric circles. So yes, I may start praying for myself, and God wants to hear me pray for things in my life. Okay, we don't need to have this false generosity thing where, oh no, 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 I never pray for myself. I only pray. No, 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 pray for yourself. You need it, right? So you start with me, but then, then we sort of move out these circles of, of closeness to me relationally. I'm going to pray for my family next. I'm praying for Sky, I'm praying for Zoe, I'm praying for my mom, my dad, my brother, his wife. Then I'm going to move out to my next circle of closeness. I'm going to pray for my church. And uh, me and Andrew, we've been as elders trying to develop a habit of praying for five or six of the members here most days of the week. We're growing at that. And then as I prayed for the church, for the saints, I look out and I pray for the world. Uh, yesterday I was praying for Africa. Um, I, was, I was in fact learning using Operation World, if you know that publication. Uh, Operation World was telling me about how uh, there are these prayer meetings happening over Africa that, that have hundreds of thousands of people attending them. And I was going, Lord, I pray for the church in Africa, but I, man, I, I pray for our church too, <laughs> that we might become a people of greater prayer. So we, we do this sort of looking outwards, praying for the saints and praying for the world to know the gospel. Uh, now, the world and the people around you need prayer, don't they? They desperately need prayer. Paul himself says in verse 19, he needs prayer. This bold evangelist who planted churches all around the ancient world when that was a new idea. No one else planted churches. Paul did, right? He needed the Ephesian church to pray for him, verse 19, that he'd open his mouth and declare the gospel confidently and courageously like he should. That is, he found it difficult. He needed prayer. I need your prayer. You need my prayer. We need each other's prayer. And so this is something we do as a habit. We keep doing it, even when it's hard, because our son or our daughter that we've been praying for is showing no signs of interest in the gospel, or our, our brother or our sister at church is showing no signs of actually having victory over that sin that we've been praying for them to have victory over. Even when we feel like giving up, we choose to stand together in the battle, shoulder to shoulder, praying for one another, and then turning about to pray for the battle, pray for the gospel to go forward. Five things that mark steadfast prayer. 
It's prayer alongside the Word, at all times, in the Spirit, through hardship, for the Gospel. This is the kind of prayer through which God promises to grow us and help us remain steadfast, more like Jesus. You will become more like the one that you stand with in the battle. And he promises through this kind of prayer to keep you in the faith, to defend you from the enemy, to hear you and answer you in his wisdom, to hold up your brothers and sisters and to save his elect among the lost. This is an incredible, incredible thing that God has chosen to do in not only hearing our prayers, but choosing to respond to them when we dig in and remain steadfast. So friends, do not give up. Do not give up. Keep putting brick on brick on brick of faithful, steadfast prayer. It will feel very ordinary at times. It does for me too. <laughs> and yet this is the means that God has ordained to use to keep you in the faith, to grow you in the faith, to reach the lost and to uphold your brothers and sisters. So do you need to take up the sword of the Spirit as you pray? And pray alongside the word. Do you need to have your Bible open more as you pray? Do you need to weave prayer more into your everyday life, entering a constant conversation with God, praying at all times? Do you need to bend your prayers to submit to God's will in the Spirit? Or you're going through such a hard time right now, you just need to trust the Spirit to intercede for you as you pray. Do you need to stand firm on the front line, even though you're in the middle of a very difficult time? If so, look at how God is forming you through prayer. Or do you need to look around the battlefield and expand your prayer for your fellow saints and for the world who are under Satan's thrall and desperately need to be saved? Let's give ourselves to these things. We are at war, but Jesus has triumphed. We only need to stand firm in the means that God provides, friends. Scripture, last week prayer this week next week fellowship let's finish by praying together lord god even as i open my mouth to pray i'm mindful of what an awesome reality this is that i am and together we are entering this triune conversation father son and spirit we are not feeling a silence. We are joining in your communication. And so, Lord, what can we do but fall to our knees in humility, knowing that we have sinned against you? We confess freely. You know all things. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to deliver us from the penalty of sin, but also its power. Lord, help us stand in that reality. Form us as a church, Lord, who are steadfast in prayer, who stand firm together, who see your will done on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's keep reflecting on these things as we share in communion. Uh, helpers are going to come and, and they're going to stand down the front here, one on each side. Uh, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have been baptized as a sign of that faith.